Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers, and democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, also represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin and the U.S. House of Representatives. The website is pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Great to have you. I understand. Uh, first of all, congratulations on on your uh, conversation with Betsy DeVos. <laughs> Usually a conversation requires uh, two-way uh, responses to questions, but yeah. um, I think was really telling of the lack of information she actually understands about her department, but certainly many, many cuts they've done but specifically to special education. I mean, there are so many, and the Special Olympics seems to be what caught people's attention, but they really should be looking at the totality of the cuts. And, you know, when Donald Trump pretended to fix it, we all need to remember that's the third year in a row he's zeroed out the Special Olympics. So it's not like he had to overrule somebody in his office. That's been his policy for three years in a row. Was it like she just was completely unprepared? She was not appropriately prepped for that meeting or that she knew what was going on and she was willing to come in and either lie to your face or try to obfuscate? I don't get I it. Don't, I think she was so out of her league, Tom. I think the best comment I saw is someone said it looked like we clipped two different segments together, me asking questions and her answering something to a different set of questions because right. she never would answer anything directly. And it was mainly because I don't think she understands. I mean, how can you defend a 15% increase in executive salaries while you're cutting programs like special education? Uh, you just can't do that. So rather than her even try, she's talked about building funds and things that were totally unrelated. So right. it really seemed to me like she had been prepped on like three big talking points. And if it came outside of that, she had no clue what was going on. Yeah. Okay. Remarkable. And finally, you guys, I don't believe you're on the House Judiciary Committee, but I, I think no. uh, Pramila Jayapal is. But the Democrats in Congress are going to try to get the Mueller report and hold uh, Trump accountable and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, how's that all going? Yeah, this morning they voted on subpoenas. They're not going to issue the subpoenas yet. They're trying to work cooperatively with the attorney general's office. But what we don't want to happen is 
they either drag their feet on this more or provide too much redacted information because the American people deserve to see the entire report. Uh, we've seen so far about 65 words of the report in the Attorney General's memo, but it's almost 400 pages of a report. So no one can credibly say what's in the report besides the Mueller investigative team and maybe another dozen people in the entire country who've seen this. Right. So uh, we need to make sure that everyone gets a chance to see the totality. The only thing we know is Donald Trump lied when he said he was fully exonerated because even in the that little memo that came from the Attorney General, he said that it did not say the president was exonerated on charges of obstruction, which is all the more reason why we need to see it. Yeah, remarkable. Well, let's get to our phone calls. Sure. Omar in Herndon, Virginia, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, Mr. Pocan, thank you for schooling Betsy DeVos. Thank you for schooling her. We elected you guys in keeping in mind that the Mueller report is going to be tampered with. You know, this report is for the American people. It's not for Trump. Why well, we need to know what are we going to do to release it for the American people? Yeah, Omar, I'll tell you, that's exactly what the committee voted on today. So we're ready with subpoenas. We will hopefully have uh, Robert Mueller come before committees and talk about it so in case anything does get distorted along the way or over-redacted, we can get a more candid conversation. But we also want all the, the accompanying uh, information that went into the report because there may be more that we need to look at. Don't forget, there is a narrow focus on the Mueller report regarding Russia's involvement with our elections which we know Russia did get involved and did want to elect Donald Trump. And we know that several times people on his campaign never reported when they were contacted by uh, people affiliated with the Russian government to share that information. But what we don't know is what other information is in there that can be helpful on other investigations that Congress is doing, and specifically around obstruction. The fact that the attorney general appointed by Donald Trump can't say that he's exonerated on obstruction tells me that's the best thing you can say. You can imagine what's in there. And uh, we need to make sure that everyone gets a chance to see that report, and we will do that. I mean, we are fighting hard to do that, and I have full faith in Jerry Nadler and the Judiciary Committee to do that. Yeah, and it's not like we haven't done this before. I, the Star Report came out in all its pornographic detail. We got the report out of Watergate. It seems like the only one that really didn't get out was the last time Barr was Attorney General, and that was in 1992, and uh, Christmas Day of 1992, when he suppressed the investigation into Iran-Contra. And the good news is, because we know of that, we know to be pushing all the harder because he may do it again. Yeah. So I, I think it will be very difficult for them to suppress things. And if they do, even with the information we get, we can now call witnesses to a variety of committees to get to the, the information we need to. So, Omar, uh, rest assured, we will do everything possible to make sure that the public sees the report. John in San Francisco, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Congressman and Tom. I heard on Monday on Red and Blue, uh, the CBSN live stream political show, they said uh, the group were talking about the DNC ordering people to not challenge incumbent Democrats. And that looks like the precursor to a fix uh, in 2020, just like in 2016, with uh, folks like Donna Brazil and uh, Debbie Washerman Schultz and everyone else putting their finger on the scale. And my thinking is, my suggestion would be to suggest that guys like Joe Biden and Clinton's and others enter the Republican Party and, and make the Republican Party better and, and let the progressive Democrats take over in uh, the Democratic Party and make it the new Democratic Party. What's your thoughts? 
Yeah, so first of all, sometimes we have an alphabet soup of acronyms for these various organizations. It was not uh, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. It was the DCCC, which is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And I know that gets confusing because we all use most of the letters uh, just in different orders. But I don't want to blame the DNC for anything that happened. And we have an open conversation still on the DCCC action. What we need to remember is that 70 or 80 percent of our districts are not competitive. And many people have actually come to Congress by uh, defeating incumbents or challenging incumbents along the way. And AOC and Joe Crowley. As an example, as well as others. I mean, there's a number of others who've come in that way to Congress. You know, I think some of our concerns were just that it looks like we're being a monopoly when we say, if you do business with someone, uh, we're not going to do business with you. I've been 31 years a small business owner, and I certainly see that as a monopolistic tactic. Uh, but we're trying to deal with it in within family as much as possible, because I do think there's the ability to try to change that policy. So, you know, uh, John, I, I don't think we need to go and do something on the outside. I want to fix what I can do from within is the best way to do it. That's not how we previously operated under the DCCC, under Ben Ray Lujan, who is running for the Senate now in New Mexico. And we're going to keep fighting to change it. So I, I, I think just keep listening. Barbara in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. You're on with Congressman Pokin. Good morning, Mr. Pokin. Uh, Hi, I'm just curious, is there a role or a protocol that Mr. Mueller would have had to give that report to the Attorney General? And if it isn't, why didn't he just give it to the Congress? Because yeah. it seems like here we are again, stuck in a muddle, and we got to wait and wait and wait. Yeah, Barbara, he did have to go to the Attorney General because that was the supervising agency. Remember Mr. Rosenstein and then the Attorney General is the boss for, for Rosenstein. So that was the right chain of command. They have a right to redact some information. We want to make sure they don't redact more information than they need to, and I think that's going to be a really important part of it. But I, I think one of the key things that I might mention, Barbara, is you know I would personally be very interested to see at some point if we get Robert Mueller before a committee you know, that little memo that was put out, suddenly now they're backpedaling that's not a, an exact review of what the report says, because I'm wondering if Robert Mueller thinks that's a fair review of what his report says. So again, since uh, Mr. Barr has a history of trying to not disclose information, that could be the case again here. So this is following the proper channels. We'll get to the bottom of it, but, but keep the pressure up with your elected representatives. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of your calls for Congress in Pocan right after this. Stick around. Today we're reading from State Capture, how conservative activists, big business, and wealthy donors reshaped the American states and the nation by Alexander Hertel Fernandez. This is from Chapter 1, titled The Most Dangerously Effective Organization. Want to buy a law? Teased the normally staid trade publication Bloomberg Businessweek in a 2011 article. That piece explained how a relatively unknown group, the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, could turn one bill idea from a business into many, many, many laws in exchange for hefty membership dues. Quote, corporations drop bills off at one end, concluded the journalists, and they come out the other stamped with the imprimatur of a nonprofit, nonpartisan group of state legislators. In the journalist's assessment, that process made ALEC a corporate bill laundry for the states. Investigative journalists from the nation reached a similar conclusion, writing that ALEC's project was best summarized as the complete business domination of American public life. 
The good government reform outfit Common Cause agreed, summing up their take on ALEC as a group in which, quote, dozens of corporations are investing millions of dollars a year to write business-friendly legislation that is being made into law in state houses coast to coast with no regard for the public interest. In a book on corporate lobbying across the states, labor scholar Gordon Laffer has concluded that, quote, above all, the corporate agenda to shape state policy is coordinated through the American Legislative Exchange Council. These assessments of ALEC paint a clear picture of a business front. That certainly squares well with some examples of the group's activities, like Enron's efforts at deregulation of state electrical markets throughout the 1990s. But the denunciations of ALEC as a corporate bill mill fit more uneasily with ALEC's other lobbying priorities. For instance, Common Cause has pointed out that in addition to lobbying for corporate tax breaks and cuts to regulation, ALEC has been at the forefront of efforts to introduce strict voter ID laws across the states. If it's voter ID, it's ALEC, declared one of Common Cause's directors. And earlier ALEC pushes prevented states from expanding legal rights to LGBT Americans and women. Where is the narrow corporate interest in these social issues? Another source of confusion comes from accounts of ALEC that emphasize its connections to Charles and David Koch, the two mega-wealthy libertarian industrialists who are often known colloquially as the Koch brothers. The Center for Media and Democracy, a left-wing group of muckrakers closely tracking ALEC, the State Policy Network, SPN, and Americans for Prosperity, AFP, have been quick to point out that ALEC has long received support from the Koch brothers' main company, Koch Industries. No one knows how much the Kochs have given ALEC in total, but the likely amount exceeds $1 million, estimated Lisa Graves, the center's head. That infusion of cash, Graves argues, has resulted in hundreds of ALEC's model bills and resolutions bearing traces of Koch's DNA, raw ideas that were once at the fringes, but that have been carved into mainstream policy through the wealth and will of Charles and David Koch. It is certainly true, as we will see, that ALEC has been supported by the Koch's main corporate arm. But to call ALEC part of the vast coctopus of organizations created and managed by the two brothers mischaracterizes both ALEC and the Koch network. ALEC is not now, nor has it ever been, part of the Koch's main network of political organizations. As best we can tell, funding for ALEC flows not from the Koch brothers' seminars of wealthy donors that finance their more ideological spending, but rather through their business. And unlike the other organizations that the Kochs direct, ALEC is not helmed by close Koch industry operatives. So if ALEC is not part of the Koch's main set of political organizations, what exactly is the relationship between the group and the Koch brothers? The misunderstanding of ALEC's relationship with business, movement, conservatives, and wealthy donors is understandable, as we'll see in this chapter, because over decades the group has included all these actors. It is neither simply a front for corporate lobbying nor another piece of the Koch network. Instead, it is best seen as a coalition that has attempted to reconcile the varied preferences of big business, firebrand conservative activists, and wealthy donors. That task has not always been easy. ALEC has at various points leaned too far forward, favoring one set of constituents over the others, sometimes resulting in backlash. Importantly, ALEC leaders would need new institutional designs to manage conflicts both within and between their constituent parts. Looking closely at these innovations sheds light on questions of coalition building in the fragmented American political system. In particular, it helps us to understand when businesses are capable of sustained collective political organization in the United States, a surprising outcome for many observers of American politics. In hindsight, it may seem obvious that an organization that brought together political conservatives with private sector companies to lobby state governments 
would be a useful creation for corporate executives and right-wing activists seeking policy change across the country. Certainly, the parties as organized interests theory I outlined in the last chapter would anticipate that businesses seeking policy change would do well to develop close alliances with such activists and politicians. Yet, on the other hand, a long line of scholars has argued that groups representing businesses and politics in the United States would be too hamstrung by internal conflicts to adopt anything other than flat-out opposition to government. State Capture is the book. Alexander Hertel Fernandez is the author. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. One of our sponsors is the X Chair. And I got to tell you, they've got this new thing, Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support. They're called DVL. The X Chair's DVL is really designed to adjust for you. I mean, you know, the average chair, maybe it goes up and down, right? This thing really is totally customizable. Whether you're 5'2 and 110 pounds or 6'4 and 250, the X Chair actually will adapt itself to you. And now with the introduction of the X Basic model, there's an X-Chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of the X-Chair's new financing option, too. Pay as little as 30 bucks a month to take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. And X-Chair is also on sale now for $100 off. So just go to X-ChairTom, T-H-O-M, X-ChairTom.com, X-ChairTom, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you use the code XWheels over at XChairTom.com now, you'll also receive a free set of the new XWheels with your chair. That's XChairTom, T-H-O-M, XChairTom.com. Jason in Vancouver, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Professor Richard Wolf, he talks about co-ops. And co-ops, the highest paid employee can't make more than six times the lowest paid. So I was wondering if we could tie Wall Street CEO pay to worker pay within like the Fortune 500. Jason, interesting question. So first of all, I co-chair the co-op caucus here in Congress. I think we have more cooperative businesses in uh, my district than any other district in the country. I'm very proud of that. There is a bill that Barbara Lee has, and I'm not sure if she's reintroduced it yet, this Congress, that for tax purposes would only allow, uh, I believe it's a 25 to 1 multiplier for CEO pay, you can pay a company whatever you want to pay, but you can't deduct anything that goes beyond 25 times the lowest paid employee, which is more like uh, the difference in places like Germany and Japan. So there are things that we can do to try to legislate it. Barbara Lee does have a proposal like that, and I think that's something that you might want to take a look at because I had a bill like that when I was in the state legislature. So I certainly appreciate where it's coming from, and I think it's one way to try to approach income inequality, especially on CEO pay. I'm pretty sure right now there's a cap of either $1 or $2 million on the deductibility of CEO pay, and the way corporations get around that is by paying their executives Another, stock. Yeah. Are there any efforts to stop the... It used to be that corporations couldn't deduct stock transfers to their CEOs, which is why you had 30 to 1 CEO paid before the Reagan era. Right. And those rules changed in the 80s. I'm not, I don't remember which year, because that seems like the much larger loophole, frankly. Yeah, when it comes to tax policy, obviously we have to clean up what happened a year and a half ago, not quite a year and a half ago, in Congress when they passed the, the tax breaks for the, the wealthiest in this country. The difficulty will be seeing how this moves forward with a Republican Senate and a Republican president. So I think right now Ways and Means is collecting lots of that information. People certainly come to us and talk about fixes that need to happen. And hopefully progressive types of fixes like this will be part of anything that moves forward. Mark from Mark to Mark. Mark in San Diego, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. 
Yes, thank you very much, Tom and uh, Congressman. I enjoyed your uh, repartee with uh, Betsy DeVos very much. I read on Daily Coast this morning that uh, some of the Democrats on your committee were not for releasing uh, a subpoena right away because they wanted to build public support for the subpoena. Uh, hello? Uh, I think there's 75 percent of Americans that support the release of the subpoena. So, A, I want to know if that's true, and B, if it is true, what's wrong with those uh, congressmen? Yeah, so I, I wasn't on the committee, Mark. And what I saw from the press accounts, I did not see that. What I saw was Jerry Nadler, because Attorney General said mid-April, and we're at April 3rd, he's saying, okay, fine, but you better really make sure you're doing this right, and I've got the subpoenas when necessary. They need to take a formal vote to be able to issue the subpoenas. So I, I don't see anything nefarious. I see a committee trying to do their due diligence, and trust me, when I look at the people on that committee, uh, you've got a really great quality makeup that will hold their feet to the fire. I have no reason to believe that Jerry Nadler is slow walking anything. Yeah. Tamara in Carl Junction, Missouri. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yes. You're on Congressman, I would like to know if there's anything Congress can do to make the domestic terrorism department permanent since Donald Trump decided to close it down. This is from Travis Geddes on Raw Story yesterday. The headline is DHS Domestic Terror Unit Eliminated by Trump Administration. Quote, it's not a priority. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has shut down a working group of intelligence analysts who focused on domestic terrorists, which has dramatically reduced the amount of information available about threats from white supremacists. You know, uh, that just continues to fall in the racist narrative this president's had. But if I can take it up to a 30,000-foot level, Tamara, I would argue that the reason we created ICE was after the nation's biggest domestic terrorism incident after 9-11, and that the agency is no longer has as their primary focus domestic terrorism, even though they've had under their purview human trafficking, drug dealing, gangs, etc., Right now, the president is using ICE as his personal police force to justify a wall with arrests all over the country uh, with people who've never done anything wrong. And that takes us off the focus of domestic terrorism. So far more important than an individual counsel is he's taking the largest growth of federal government in most of our adult lifetimes with Homeland Security and abusing an agency that was set out to protect us from domestic terrorism. That should be a great concern to everyone. Andrew in mm -hmm. Vancouver, Washington, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I had a question about student loan interest. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, wouldn't it be more viable to lower the interest rate down to about 2% since the Republicans' argument is that we have to pay to go to college? Then at least that way it's manageable so we can pay our loans back. Because my current interest rate is 6.7%. I left school with $40,000 in debt. I'm making my payments each month, but I have to pay almost just under $5,000 before I even start touching the principal every year. We do have a bill that I think we're reintroducing next week. Senator Warren also has a bill, Senator Gillibrand, on refinancing of student loans. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to refinance your student loan like you would a house or a car at the lowest available rate is what our bill does, and that would, would help your situation specifically. There have been proposals to have lower rates. The proposal that I'm most intrigued by is the proposal the Progressive Caucus is behind working with groups like Demos which is debt-free college, so it takes in not just your tuition, but your living expenses, books, et cetera. 
it's a shared partnership between the federal government, state government, the university, and the student. And the way it would basically work is with additional financial aid from the federal government. If states are putting additional support for their public universities, the university has skin in the game. A student might be able to work 10 or 12 hours a week, work study, and leave a public institution with a four-year degree with no debt whatsoever. And it doesn't cost that much. It's a very realistic proposal. Everyone has skin in the game. And that we're trying to get more of the presidential candidates to take a look at because I think it would be the most encompassing, so it's not just addressing tuition, that's 40% of your cost as a four-year student, 80% as a two-year, but it would address everything, and that would be really important. This is, the, I believe, the first generation in the history of the United States to run up consequential college debt. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's $1.6 trillion now. Is, Second largest uh, of all debt out there. Yeah. Any thoughts on an amnesty of some kind or a jubilee? There are some folks that have just started talking to members of Congress with some ideas around that, and I, I bet you'll see some proposals this session around that. That, that would be great. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us taking your calls for the hour. His website is pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at RepMarkPocan. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and he represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Middays with Mark on the place where despair is not an option. The Tom Hartman Program. We'll be right back. Our book today is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. I'm reading from Chapter 4, titled An Army of One. Two years after the incident at Cape May, Bo's failure still ate at him. He never told his parents what had happened. The day they shipped me out, a thought occurred to me and it stayed in my mind whenever I thought about the Coast Guard, he told General Dahl, and that was that I wanted to fix that. Those who knew him knew Bo was struggling with something. He would never say what it was, but the tension was plain. He spent more and more time in his room at Anna's. There was no bed, no couch, no TV, but on his days off from work, he stayed there sometimes for days at a time. Fontaine and her other new roommate heard him yelling at himself. I can't believe you did that. That was so stupid. Some of his friends worried, but Bo never complained, and around men in particular, he carried himself with stoic severity. Women saw a more concerning aspect. In the Harrison's kitchen, one of Kim's friends grabbed his hand, flipped his forearm over to reveal the neat rows of cuts. You have such nice arms, she said. What the heck are you doing to yourself? I'm getting ready, he told her. What are you getting ready for? Pain. Bo, what on earth are you talking about? I'm just getting ready. Enough time had passed where I got uncomfortable again with not doing something that was making a difference, he told Dahl years later. His parents put him in touch with their pastor from Boise, Phil Proctor, who was ministering with seminary students in northeastern Uganda. Bo told his parents it sounded interesting. He could go to East Africa and teach villagers self-defense techniques. But the timing didn't work out. All the seminary spots were taken. That spring, Bo's seeking came full circle. He remembered meeting another Coast Guard washout who told him that if he wanted to, he could re-enlist. The Army was stressed for new, warm bodies. His family knew he'd been thinking about it. Whatever you do, don't join the Army, his sister and Albrecht told him. It was a bit of the old Army-Navy rivalry coming through, but Skye also believed that the Navy took care of its own in a way that the Army never had. His mother agreed, but didn't think Bo would actually enlist. Days later, when she saw him on the highway driving back from Twin Falls in his motorcycle, she knew that he had. At the Army recruiting station, Bo was a young man in a hurry. He told the recruiter that he wanted to become a scout, a soldier who takes risky missions to track down enemy positions. The recruiter told him there were no more slots available for scouts, but that he had three openings in the infantry, 
which would fill up fast if Bergdahl didn't act quick. He offered him a $5,000 signing bonus to sweeten the deal. In the spring of 2008, the Army had lowered its recruiting standards to levels not seen since the end of the draft. Five years earlier, at the start of the Iraq War, 94% of new recruits had high school diplomas. By 2005, that number had dropped to 71%. New soldiers with what the Army defined as Category 4 intelligence, those who scored in the 30th percentile or below, were accepted. As Iraq burned, their numbers rose, rising from just six one-hundredths of a percent of new recruits and up to 4%. Convicted felons could secure a waiver from a sympathetic officer, and they were accepted too. Physical fitness standards dropped. Recruiters fudged paperwork and coached problem cases like Bergdahl through background checks. His Coast Guard diagnosis was no longer disqualifying. He simply signed a form prepared by his recruiter stating that he had overcome his earlier issues. Bergdahl's waiver was approved in late May 2008, and he was issued orders to Fort Benning, Georgia, for Infantry One Station Unit training, where civilians were turned into infantrymen. His parents didn't take the news as badly as Bo had feared. Janney was relieved that he would no longer be traveling the world alone. Bob thought the structured life would do him good. Reading the news at the time, he also believed that the Taliban was on the run and the risk of serious combat was low. He's barely going to get in on the war in Afghanistan, Bob recalled thinking at the time. It's almost over. Kim and her brother took it much worse. Mark Ferris's heart sank at the news. The last they had talked, Bo was planning a two-week wilderness trip in the Yellowstone River in a sea kayak. It was a wild idea and would be a rough trip, but Ferris thought it could work. The Army would not work. If there was a human being unfit for the Army who should never have joined the Army, it was Bo, said Ferris. He was naive, idealistic, good-spirited, a very gentle person, and a gentle soul. Anna Fontaine was equally concerned. Why was this a better idea than the Coast Guard? You tried this before. It didn't work. Why are you putting yourself through this again? Bo told her he was older now and had matured. I was naive then, he said. I now know what to expect. Anna had grown up in the South near Army bases and told him he wouldn't like the rough culture. It didn't matter. He was dead set on it, she said. He was gung-ho. Her parting words to him were, keep your head down, don't be a hero. During two weeks of in-processing as an infantry trainee at the Army's 30th Adjutant General Reception Battalion, Bergdahl learned that the Army didn't care for his feelings, his opinions, or his time. And the book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one 888 gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one 888 gold Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, and it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. 
uh, no charge for that. So we're trying to get the word out. There's so many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. John in Sunland, California, watching on YouTube. You're on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. It's Middays with Mark here on the Tom Hartman program. John, you're up. I wanted to know how not releasing the Mueller report is going to be used as a campaign wedge issue, you know, given the fact Fox has 180 radio stations and Limbaugh and Ingram and Coulter echo these nonsense things that Twitter boy tweets about. How is that going to be? It's, it's going to go to the federal court and Supreme Court, and he's stalling. Barr is stalling. He's de delaying. He's denying it, the release of the report. How are you going to deal with that as a campaign issue, sir? So the only thing I might say slightly differently is he said mid-April. We're on April 3rd. We had asked for things the 2nd. I mean, we're, we're talking of a difference of less than two weeks. If he winds up too heavily redacting or delaying from that, we have subpoenas in place. But I'm not sure that I can call it yet that he's dragging his feet on it in that, you know, we're a difference of less than two weeks. So we will get to get, see that report, and if too much is redacted, we will have ways to try to get what's been overly redacted. So I'm not yet in the place to say I think that the Attorney General's doing is in violation of the law. Um, it's still relatively fresh that he's got it to look at it to redact. So, you know, I'm going to trust Jerry Nadler and, and the, we have a lot of great progressives on the Judiciary Committee to get this done. So I can just give us a little patience, but it doesn't take much at this point. We're, we're within a couple weeks. Denise in Calumet, Michigan. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi. Thank you both for all you do. I am trying to figure out why people that are on Medicare that had to get on Medicare early for Social Security because of the Social Security disability, since Trump got elected, my supplemental insurance, which only pays 20% of the Medicare allowable, went up from $122.65 a month to $382. It's like paying a small mortgage, and yet they hardly have to pay anything for my insurance. It's a group of people that are getting robbed by the insurance company. When I'm 65, it'll go down, but I have to pay this until then. Yeah, Denise, that's why I think you see a number of proposals that go beyond fixing the Affordable Care Act. We absolutely must, without question, fix the Affordable Care Act from all the death by a thousand cuts that occurred for the last two years by the Republicans and by President Trump to shore up just the existing folks. But um, clearly, uh, this is why many of us are advocates for Medicare for All. There are also bills to lower the age that you could buy into Medicare for the very reasons that you're showing the flaws of the system. We can't have it be that expensive to offer what many westernized countries in the world currently offer their citizens anyway, and we should be able to do that. So I think we've taken it up to the bigger conversation of the Medicare for All there are other bills that also would be steps forward. We had a press conference recently to shore up the Affordable Care Act, but I completely hear you. There's no question, and even under the Affordable Care Act right now, the deductibles are way too high because of all the changes that happened by the Trump administration. We're trying to unwind all of that. But you should not go broke just to be healthy in this country. That makes no sense. Diane in Tampa, Florida, listening to WMMF. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. We recently had an expose in the uh, local newspaper about military housing here, how it's full of mold and there's rats and roaches. Tampa is a very damp climate, so you always have to deal with mold. 
And I was wondering if we couldn't emphasize that as Democrats, that we need to put our money there instead of a wall, because they're always using the military to say, we take such good care of military. And if you want to access the article, it's in the Tampa Bay Times probably about a week or two ago. Diane, that's a great point. In fact, some of that money for military housing is being diverted from my home state of Wisconsin for the wall under the proposal by the president. So that's why we have been fighting it. We expect there'll be a court injunction at some point on this, and we're hoping that no dime uh, of money will be diverted to the wall at the end of the day. But, you know, he's come back with another $8 billion request in his budget proposal that, again, is, is on many other fronts completely ridiculous. It cuts Social Security, Medicaid, National Institutes for Health, Special Olympics, as we highlighted with our conversation with Secretary DeVos. So that is absolutely one of the areas we are pointing out, and there are projects all around the country in everyone's districts where money will be diverted. I think that's a great suggestion, and I already see members doing it. And we've had that conversation about my home state. Frank, on Staten Island, New York, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. When they ask people on the street in California, what do you like better, Obamacare or Affordable Care Act, and they don't know it's the same thing, or when Mulvaney's on State of the Union and Mr. Tapper says, well, the difference in your pre-existing condition coverage is that you're, the cost is different. And then people that don't believe that people in Puerto Rico are citizens or New Mexico is part of the United States, how do you convince people that whatever the Republicans put out there is probably not where the paper it's printed on? That, that's my big worry right now. Yeah, Frank, you know, mine too, because they seem to be very disciplined. They get Frank Luntz out there and, you know, they're doing all kinds of stuff to get just the right words to use, and they all repeat the right words, and they don't care if it's a lie or not. They put it out there, and they're effective for that reason in, in many times. The, the good news is I think Donald Trump, though, has proven himself enough to be a liar that people don't believe him, even after he completely exonerated himself in every way from the Mueller report, even though no one's read it. People get that, and 29% said he's been exonerated, but the rest haven't. So to me, I look at that with a silver lining because there's a part of his base that's never going to leave him as long as he talks bad about black and brown-skinned people uh, and people who are Muslim and anyone else who's an other in this country. If he keeps that up, he's going to have that base no matter what. But the fact that only 29% after all his personal exoneration of himself, people are smarter. So I still believe in the American people, even though we see these distortions of facts because people are smarter than the Republicans think they are, and uh, we just have to keep putting the truth out there in, in every possible way uh, through our social media and the conversations we have with our friends, and I do think we can get that across. Bill in Aurora, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, um, Mr. Rodenstein some time ago announced he was going to step down, and then he delayed it uh, because of the Mueller report coming out. Now, I think he's much more trustworthy than Mr. Barr. Are there any new developments about how long he will wait till he actually steps down? Bill, not that I know of. I completely agree with you. He is far more trustworthy than the attorney general, especially given his history in this area. But, you know, I think Robert Mueller, and to be fair, Rod Rosenstein has impressed me. The very first meeting we had with him, I was a little concerned. It was in a classified setting. Some things he said I, I thought... He may not be a straight shooter, and instead he turned out to, I think, be very fair and protected what could happen with the report. But all the more reason why we need to see the report, because what's in there may be different than the 65 words plus other paraphrasing by the attorney general. So I don't have the answer on how long Rod Rosenstein will be around, but I do have confidence that we have many ways to subpoena people should we need to if we think we're not getting the truth and all the information. 
Bill in St. Paul, Minnesota, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good day, gentlemen. It was my understanding till Reagan came along that Social Security was never taxed at all. And being a senior, I'm not exactly uh, anywhere near living a life of luxury on Social Security. So I'm wondering, Congressman, if that can be reversed or lessened in some way. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you very much. Like the show. Thank you, Bill. Sure, Bill. Thank you. I. You know, I think there's a lot of things we need to do around Social Security. One, John Lewis has a bill that would increase the amount of the increases you're getting instead of being tied to the CPI uh, to a different index. Uh, We need to do more things to strengthen and preserve the program, like lifting the cap either partially or completely to extend the life of the program. When it comes to the tax issue, I I think I referred to earlier in the program, we still have a Republican Senate in a White House. I don't anticipate they will do anything that democratizes the taxing of Social Security. But you make a really solid point. That is a relatively small amount of money, yet a very real amount when a third of the people are living just off of Social Security and half the people in the country off Social Security and and their home. Uh, It's vital to people's existence. And anything uh, that takes away from that relatively small amount people get that they've paid into their entire life seems to be a problem. So I, I think it's something you could change but will it change in the current political environment? I doubt it. Mark in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I was hoping for a blue wave yesterday in Wisconsin, and I was very disappointed to hear that the radical right candidate, Brian Haggard, and beat Wisconsin Democrat Lisa Neubauer, and the result was just 50.2 to 49.8. I'm curious, Congressman, about your results for that, and if you think there may be a chance for a runoff in that tight election. Yeah, Mark, uh, thanks for that question. I'll tell you, I was up fairly late watching the results. It was very sad. Uh, Lisa Newbar is, is an extraordinary candidate. She was endorsed by 98% of the judges who endorsed in the race, including she and, and the person she beat, who, as you, admit, as you said, was a radical, homophobe, uh, conservative, outspoken in that stance. Uh, 19 of the 22 judges that are at their level they serve with endorsed her over him. I mean, it was very, very clear, and I was shocked to see the result. Part of it is we have lower turnout in those April races. We did have a Madison mayor's race, and we delivered a lot of votes out of there uh, for Lisa Neubauer. But um, I'm still getting some of the information about what happened across the state, but it was very disheartening because uh, it was an important path to taking back the Supreme Court. Bill in Tucson, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning. How are you both doing? Good, Bill. Thank you. Good. Congressman, I'm very disappointed thus far in the Judicial Committee, and particular uh, Congressman Nadler. You know, we have had this report out now, what, 10, 11 days, 12 days? And you have no idea, nor does anyone else, what exactly that idiotic attorney general is doing to that particular report written by a man who I happen to have great respect for and served with in Vietnam. Now, we are waiting to hand out subpoenas? Really? Could you please explain to me the reason for that? And I'll take the answer off the air. Thank you. Yeah, Bill, I I think the difference that I'm looking at is, of course, there has to be some redacting based on parts of the information they got from the report because there were the number of uh, over 35 people charged and uh, because some of that information has to be redacted that takes a little bit of time and i'm not thinking that this is an unusual amount of time yet from past reports so i guess i 
don't agree with you 100% that it, there's like this dragging going on. I do think it's unusual that the Attorney General decided to do a four-page memo with only 65 words and come out with his summary, and now he's trying to walk that back. So clearly, I agree that that is a distortion and isn't helpful, but I, I have seen nothing that seems to be yet uh, the Judiciary Committee not doing everything they can to be on top of this. Um, you know, I, I've been uh, a little unhappier with our rate of uh, speed in trying to get the president's tax returns. Uh, but when it comes to judiciary, uh, they have done, I think, everything they can. And we will, you know, again, less than two weeks is the difference. And he's going to use the subpoenas that they met this morning to have to show that they're serious about this. Uh, I think they're moving in a good way with due diligence. Ray in Leavenworth, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, I thank you guys for doing this. I really appreciate it. But I'm going to go back to uh, an earlier caller's subject, and it's about the redaction on this report. How in the heck are you guys going to know what he's redacted? He could have taken something out of there that he doesn't want you to see, or something about Trump. I, I mean, come on. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> I hear you, Ray. You know, I, I agree with everyone who has distrust, right, uh, right now, based on everything the president's done uh, since he's been in office and the attorney general and his past. However, I, I can tell you, I just got 297 out of 400 pages redacted to me from uh, ICE on a Freedom of Information Act request I made, which is ridiculous. I can clearly tell if you get something like that, you know too much information has been redacted. You can get that information. We will fight to get it. You can tell within the context of what is taken and, and been redacted. It's supposed to be just names, not all the information per se in a lot of the areas. We'll be able to tell based on that. So I think based on previous reports, and I've read redacted classified reports in a, in a, in a, a private setting, you know, the skiff where we have to go to read these classified reports, and you can often make out the context of what you're not getting uh, and what you need to get. So it is not impossible, but I fully understand why everyone would not trust this president, this White House, or the attorney general on this. But uh, rest assured, we'll do our very best uh, to try to get that information. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You know, Louise and I just got back from Mexico, and uh, we took a week's vacation uh, with my brother and his family, but it was also a week that I could finish up writing this, this book on voting that I've been working on. And while we were there, uh, my brother-in-law, or my brother and sister-in-law rented a house that we all shared, and it, it, it had, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that was kind of public Wi-Fi. And, uh, you know, going to town, there's public Wi-Fi. At the airport, there's public Wi-Fi. Pretty much everywhere I was, I didn't know, you know, whether it was secure or not, but I was not concerned because Louise and I both use ExpressVPN. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my computer. I, she, Louise has it on her laptop. I have it on my laptop. Uh, she has it on her iPad. Uh, ExpressVPN, it's one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. In fact, when we were in Mexico, uh, if it, you know, it, it would have looked to any website pretty much like we were in the United States because the ExpressVPN uh, apparently was just dropping our data and, you know, encrypted from where we were in Mexico right into the United States, you know, into a main pipeline and uh, completely safe, completely secure. Uh, with Exp ExpressVPN, I can surf any Wi-Fi without worrying about my personal data being stolen. And it's less than seven bucks a month. For less than seven dollars a month, you can get the same protection that Louise and I have. 
And ExpressVPN has been rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can protect your online activity now and get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. This is a product. I love endorsing this product. I actually use it. ExpressVPN is something you should have. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to learn more. And thanks for supporting our program. George in Santee, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, uh, a quick question, Mr. Pocan. Uh, is there anything we can do about this out-of-control war spending? Yeah, George, I'll tell you, we're actually trying this a little bit right now um, as we're about to put numbers to the Appropriations Committee. You know, when you look at uh, the growth of spending on the defense side, and, and we're trying to get uh, additional spending on the non-defense side, it's something that uh, I can't justify. Um, you know, we're involved in too many places in the world. We're spending too much, I think, with contractors that uh, don't go to our troops. If you really want to invest in programs that help people in the United States, we need to get more of that money that's going to defense, going to non-defense. And yet, I don't know if we're going to be successful. We're actually whipping this question right now among the Progressive Caucus to see if we can maybe try to uh, enact some change and what will be going forward from the House Democrats. But uh, it is something that is absolutely fully worthy of a national debate uh, because you can't just keep escalating more and more and more and expecting to have any different results. Diplomacy makes a lot more sense than investing it in the Department of Defense. Dale in Kearney, Nebraska. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, Tom, thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, Congressman Pocan, I know this is going to sound real simplistic, but I would have thought that uh, Mueller would have had a copy of this report. And another concern of mine is that really, I don't think any of this is going to matter until we can get electronic voting machines out of our elections. And so that's uh, really my points of concern. Again, I refer to the Mueller report. I say outside of the Mueller investigative team, there's maybe a dozen people who've read this report, right? So I think there's still ways we can get information out of Mr. Mueller and others through various processes if they go too far in redacting. So again, there's going to be some alternatives. To the second part, Dale, I, I agree with you. I had a provision that was put into H.R. 1, the first bill we passed in Congress, that had mandatory paper ballots on every electronic voting machine so we can have an actual paper hand count uh, so you can have more confidence in the machines. But, you know, we even wanted to make the machines American-made. The Republicans wouldn't agree to an amendment around that. Why would we want a machine made in another country if we don't allow parts on our Navy ships and, and airplanes that the Air Force uses from other countries without having special confirmation. So I agree that there is more we need to do. We have put some of those proposals out there, especially in H.R. 1, and let's make sure your state and your local government can do those things as well and provide the best protections at that level. That is something you can still do, Dale, and I'd, I'd recommend you try doing that. Jeff in Lancaster, New York. You're on the air with Congress in Pocahontas. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, the, the question I have is, is I, I, I hear these commercials, and they constantly go on about mortgage theft and title theft. I hear the commercials actually, Tom, on, on your program when I listen on uh, XM Radio while I'm at right. work. Right. But, you know, we got guys like O'Reilly and Glenn Beck. Why is it my fault if my home title gets stolen 
and that I have to buy home title insurance. Jeff, you and I uh, think on the same wavelength on this. I've heard the commercials as well, and I can tell you in the state of Iowa, you're not required to have title insurance because I had a case in my district where someone seven years was waiting to get paid off from a mistake the title insurance company made, and they wouldn't pay it until we went public to the press, and they had two days in a row of bad press, and finally they decided to do what their job was, is pay a claim. So I'm wondering about the same thing, and we're going to be looking into it because I've heard the commercials, and I'm not sure if it ultimately is a scam or not, and I can't tell you at this moment whether or not it is. That's remarkable. That's absolutely yeah. remarkable. I've heard those too. I'm, you know, somebody's going to steal my title, really? I, you know, it's just fascinating. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom, as always. Congressman Pocan's website is pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep Mark Pocan. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, by the way, Mitch McConnell yesterday undid 213 years of Senate history in 33 minutes. I mean, it, this goes back to Aaron Burr. The idea that the Senate is the deliberative body, it's where things take a little longer than normal. It's where this is what conservative used to mean. You could argue that historically the Senate was the most conservative body. But these Republicans are not conservatives. They are radical revolutionaries. They are reactionaries. And they are trying to transform America into a libertarian oligarchic state. And in fact, they're succeeding. And right now they're trying to do it by completely seizing control of the judiciary on behalf of the Federalist Society, this billionaire funded outfit that has provided the last couple of Supreme Court justices. The last two years of the Obama administration, I think they let through two of his judges. But they've put through, I believe, over 80 of them so far. They are stacking the federal judiciary. And of course, this is also the stepping stone into the Supreme Court. And, and since most really big consequential cases don't actually make it to the Supreme Court, they, get, you know, they, they, they stop at the federal appeals court level, this is just dramatically remodeling for the lifetime of our children the federal judiciary, which is the third branch of government, and it was thought to be the least likely to offend, to quote Alexander Hamilton, the least powerful, but has become the most powerful because as we've seen in a number of big decisions, the Supreme Court can actually write laws. They did it in Plessy versus Ferguson. They did it in Roe v. Wade. They've done it in others. They can actually write law and they can certainly overturn law. Those used to be functions that were purely reserved to Congress. So this is the Republicans now taking over the third branch of government in a way that it'll be much, much harder to recover from. Uh, just to, to recap some of the news of the day, and I think there's so much going on. Albert Fall was the uh, Secretary of the Navy, as I recall. I think Harding, and then uh, stayed on with Coolidge, and he was involved in this whole Teapot Dome scandal. And Congress needed to look into this, but they couldn't get a hold of the income tax records of uh, Albert Fall or of the president. And I think it was Coolidge at that point in time. It might have still been Harding. And so they created this law saying that the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, this one person in the House of Representatives and, and the similar chairman in the similar committee in the Senate or chairperson would have access at all times simply by simple request to the IRS to the tax records of any person in the United States, including the president. And so Richard Neal, Representative Richard Neal, who is the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, has sent a letter to the IRS saying, cough up. 
six years. We want to see Trump's taxes. And Trump's response was, oh, they didn't ask for 10. They must be giving up, which is interesting. I mean, he, he literally views everything as a war that he either wins or loses. So that's going on. And it's going to be real interesting to see because Trump has no legal basis to defy this. But like I've said about, you know, uh, cover up uh, General Barr, which is what William Sapphire used to refer to Bill Barr as back in 1992. And I've noticed a number of people retweeting those articles from The New York Times from 1992. Like cover up General Barr, it's still going on. I mean, I, I believe that we're seeing, we are literally seeing the obstruction of justice by Bill Barr himself in real time right in front of our eyes. This is something, you know, that we really need to deal with. Meanwhile, just amazing uh, information about Jamal Khashoggi's body. Khashoggi, they actually built an oven to cremate him on the grounds of the Saudi uh, consulate in Turkey in, in, uh, in a week before he showed up, getting ready to destroy his body. This is mind-boggling. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Would you like to hear special content where we talk about, you know, what the billionaires are up to or climate change or the newest things in science? There's all kinds of great content like that. That's also available. The place to find all this is the Tom Hartman channel over on Patreon. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com as slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. And there... When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show every day, anytime you want, any place you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. So let's check in on Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us is former Ohio Congressman Bob Ney, author of Sideswiped. Congressman, welcome back. What's up? Well, thank you, Tom. I wanted to start with the request for the president's tax records Great. because the, the uh, national media requests have set a little-known provision which it may not have been known, you know, in general by the public, but if you look back at uh, an article from a year ago by George Yin, and he's, I think, pretty well recognized. He was on the uh, actual committee mm -hmm. for the Joint Tax Committee. Right. But through the article, it may be little known, but it has been exercised over the years. It goes back to Calvin Coolidge when they needed some information, uh, the Teapot Dome scandal. Right. And then they woke up to the fact that Congress did around 1910. They had to rely on the president because the president, ever since the tax code, and of course at that time it applied to corporate only, but the president was the only one that could ask for it. So 1924, it was amended. And frankly, Tom, from the article that I've read now three times, it's pretty clear-cut. It can be requested by any one of the three entities, the Senate, the House Ways and Means, or the Joint Tax Committee, and it can be made public. There are certain, you know, criteria, but it's part of an investigation. 
seems to be the foolproof measure. And it goes back to Wilbur Mills, the chairman of the uh, House Ways and Means Committee, you know, who got in trouble years ago. It goes back to his request, and it goes back to President Nixon at that time. Yeah, they they pulled Nixon's. They pulled uh, Nelson Rockefeller, the vice president of the United States. They pulled his taxes. Correct. So, so this is I not this is not obscure or little known. I mean, this has been used three times in big ways in the history of the United States in my lifetime. Sure, and I really don't think that it's going to be a huge court battle. I mean, anything be, can be taken to court, but I am going to be very interested to see what the Treasury Secretary responds. What does he say in response? Yeah, no. well, he gave a, this morning, he, he did an interview, and it was very mealy-mouthed. He was like, well, I'm going to do everything I can to protect the, the privacy of uh, all citizens, including the president, blah, 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 blah. Well, but there's no there there. The problem is that if Treasury refuses to turn these things over, if the IRS, which I believe is an executive branch agency, isn't the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service appointed by the president? Yes. So if the IRS is ordered by Trump not to turn that over to Congress and then Congress sues to get it, a year and a half is after the next election, yeah. right? It could take a year and right. a half to work its way through the courts and get all the way up to the Supreme Court. And then the five conservatives in the Supreme Court could say, oh, yeah, sure, we'll hear it in the spring of uh, you know, 2020. And we'll bring down our decision in the spring of 2021. You know? Correct. But if you look at it, I was shocked at the clear-cut nature of it. Oh, it's absolutely it unambiguous. The added for period. Yeah, no, you don't, even, you don't even have to ask for them. You can demand them. You can simply say, gimme. Right. Yeah, right. or he can anyway, the, the, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Yeah. Right. And then the other story, too, is, you know, the, the, some uh, people in the national media have asked people that worked for Mueller, for the special counsel, about whether or not there should have been the synopsis that they provided to be added in Barr's report. Right. And, I, and I think this in itself, I think that the Democratic majority will, uh, I think, begin to control this narrative because as the media goes and tries to get comments from Mueller's people, you know, versus Mueller himself, I think it creates, uh, you know, several problems out there of information coming from within uh, Mueller's people versus the House, which I think in a very simple uh, vein, pretty soon, will simply get the 400 pages from Barr and then ask the jackpot question and the jackpot person, which is Mueller, has Barr eliminated anything? Because Mueller knows what's in the report, and that's got to be the way they're going to go. My understanding is that several people at the very top of Mueller's organization wrote their own independent summaries of the report, and that at least one of them was written with the express intent that this is something that could be made public. In other words, we've got to write a summary for ourselves that doesn't contain anything that needs to be redacted. No grand jury testimony, no information, or anything like that would be referred to obliquely. So there's one version that was you know, explicitly designed for the public to see, uh, another version that was explicitly designed for Congress to see in a way that they could make decisions about and they could redact, and then, of course, the, the large report. I have no independent corroboration of that. I've heard it from one source from Washington, D.C., but it makes so much sense. Well, sure it does. And eventually, like I said, Mahler will weigh in on it and can and should weigh in on it. And that's where I think the chairman of the committee leads to. And then the big news, you know, the House has passed the Senate resolution. It passed it 247 to 175. This directs President Trump to remove the U.S. military aid from Yemen within 30 days and to end the U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition. Right. Which is Let's big. see what the president does, and maybe he will get an override. 
Let's see what his son-in-law, Kushner, does. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Jared needs his billion, $1.8 billion, and so... And, you know, Bob, Bob <laughs> Nay, thank you, Bob. Thank you. Great talking with you. Check out Bob's book, Sideswiped, by the way. It's brilliant. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right, the people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.